Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 27. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. So this is our second week in this text. Last week we preached through this as well, but we didn't get as far through it as I would have liked to. So I don't usually return to a passage because, as you notice, we're, uh, this is now our 37th sermon through the Gospel of Luke, and we've got uh, 13, 15 more chapters to go. So we want, I want to get us along, but uh, we didn't get all the way through this, and so I wanted to come back and return to this text this morning. We only made it to verse 23 basically last week, which was the call to that if anyone would follow, if anyone would follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. But this week we're going to go on down and look more into verses 24 and 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So that's where we're going to get to, but I want to get there by first looking at the end of the passage. Because verse 27 says something very interesting, and there's a lot of, um, a lot of ink spilled on what this verse 27 means. He says here to his disciples, he's speaking specifically to them at this point, but he says, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, I don't want you to think, well, Darren, just skip that verse because it's hard, because that's a temptation, just to pretend like it's not in, you know, we'll just skip over it. But Jesus says this kind of interesting statement to his disciples that, that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, from my studying and looking around, I found five possible different interpretations to what Jesus meant by this statement. And just quickly, I'll share with you all five, and you can kind of, I suppose, pick which one you like. I don't know. At the end of the day, I'll see how there's a, there's a big general idea that Jesus is communicating that is clear, and there's five maybe specific ways you could look at that. The first one is that there's a, a John eight fifty two sort of way in which there's a really interesting statement Jesus says to his disciples that the Christian will not taste death. And it's Go look at it later this afternoon if you want to, John chapter 8. There's a way in which Jesus might be speaking that there's some standing here who will not taste death. And there's something about uh, the Christian experience that dying is not really like dying. That when we are going to be with the Lord, it totally revolutionizes the way you look at death. It's still our enemy, and it's still terrible to go through death. We don't want to die, but it happens now. But for the Christian, it's different. Uh, it's like that sometimes it's spoke, spoken of as falling asleep. 
they've fallen asleep. For the Christian, they go to be with Jesus. So maybe one way he's saying that is there's some standing here because they'll be believers. They will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. That's the first one. The second one, and very more, a much more popular one, is that if you look down in Luke chapter 9, the next event is this transfiguration, right? They go up on the mountain and there they see Moses and Elijah and Jesus on the mountaintop. And so there's a possibility that what he's saying is that they're going to see the kingdom come at this transfiguration. The third one is that the disciples, they see the resurrection. They now go to Jerusalem. Jesus dies, is buried, and then he's resurrected. And there are some standing here, the 11 of them. Judas won't be around at that point. But the 11 of them, some standing here who will see the kingdom come in their glory. That's just three of them. A fourth possibility, the 11 disciples might have, they're going to be there for the birth of the church. Jesus is going to ascend after 40 days into heaven, and then he's going to send the Holy Spirit onto his new church. And the start of the church, the birth of the church there at Pentecost, maybe they see that. I tell you truly, some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Maybe it's that. And the fifth one is, and I heard this one just this week actually, that maybe he's talking about the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Jesus has prophesied that they're going to destroy the temple. No stone will be left on top of one of the, of one of the other. And so maybe he's saying the coming of the kingdom in judgment against the temple. There's five options for you. And I, I share all those. Maybe I didn't need to share all those. But th- there's just, just to show there's a wide uh, variety of opinion on what he's actually talking about here. But... I got a couple that I would lean towards, but the, this I do know. No matter which view of this text that you take, one of those five, or, or whatever, no matter which view you take of this, Jesus is communicating this one certainty. He is accomplishing a mission and it will not be stopped. He is saying that something, he is about a mission, he is doing something, and he's saying that there are some of you here, you will see it happen. He is guaranteeing that what he is doing, the mission that he is on, the work that he is accomplishing, they will see it. That is the emphasis. He is, in the last two verses of this passage, pointing their eyes to the end of it all. And he's promising that he will be the one to wrap this thing up. And that some of them, as true believers in him, minus Judas that they will not miss out on that final triumphant moment. You will not taste death until you will see the kingdom of God coming. And that brings us kind of to our main point. Because he's pointing, you will see it. If you are a believer in Christ, if you are my disciple, if you are mine, you will see the kingdom coming. And so that's where this leads to, which helps us in our understanding of how can gaining the world really be losing? And how can losing the world really be gaining? Jesus begins to push this on his listeners, right? He has this upside-down thinking. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will actually save it. This upside-down paradigm. Seek to save your life, you'll lose it. Lose your life for Christ's sake, you'll actually save it. And that whoever, what does it profit a person if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his own soul? And the, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is that it's nothing. 
But the upside down thinking that Jesus first puts forward is that to seek to save yourself is to lose yourself. And to lose your life for Jesus' sake is to actually save it. And these principles, they're just directly connected to last week, right? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Any follower of Christ, to follow Christ is to put your own desires, your own demands in the back seat. They do not drive the car that you're in anymore. To be a follower of Christ is to take your desires, your demands, and to put them at least in the back seat and maybe throw them out of the car altogether. If not altogether away from you, but you are at least to surrender yourself, not to your own desires, your own demands, but to whatever Christ would have for you. It is this sort of reality that, that fuels um, much of the modern cross-cultural missionary movement that we see today. Um, at the beginning of the modern missionary movement, this kind of, it took off there in, Ameri- in, in different places in, in Europe, and as they're seeking to um, spread the gospel into Africa, into China, into all these different islands that were around, they were discovering that they, they, this thought fueled the movement there was, when you would take off on these trips, you would get on a boat, not a, not a luxury cruiser, you'd take off on a boat, and you would travel months, possibly, to your port where you're going to put your ministry up, and you would be gone for months, and you would know that if I got sick or whatever, it's a months-long trip back to any sort of modern medicine. So a lot of people, when they would, missionaries, when they would leave to go to their missionary journeys, they would pack all their possessions in their coffin. They'd take a big, long box that would fit a body, and that's what they put their stuff in on this boat, and they knew that this box that had their possessions that they were traveling with would very likely be the box that they would come home in. They were willing, and they were, they were making this move to following the call of God because of this understanding that to seek to save themselves would be to really lose themselves. And to lose themselves for Christ's sake was to actually save themselves. They knew the chances were great. They would go and catch yellow fever and typhoid and all these diseases that, that we have remedies for and we've gotten rid of by our, by our modern standards. But back then, it was, they were death sentences. But they were going knowing that that they were going with possessions in a box that they would likely be carried home with, uh, carried home in. I read a biography of missionary uh, John G. Patton is his name, and he sailed to the New Hebrides, is what they were called then, uh, cleared down to the east of Australia. They got Papua New Guinea and all of these uh, these uh, South Pacific islands, and they were cannibals. This island was the people had gone and raised them and. They end up getting killed and eaten. And John Patton is, has a heart broken for these people. He wants to see the gospel reach them. So he leaves from Scotland, I believe that it is, to go sail down in 1858. This is a long time ago, 1858. But his decision didn't come without criticism. On one account, before he was leaving, a respected elder chided, he and his wife went down, they chided the couple, and they said, you'll be eaten by cannibals. That was the argument. Don't go down to the New Hebrides, you're going to be eaten by cannibals. And Patton replied, Mr. Dickinson, you are advanced in years now. It's not a nice thing to say, but he says, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, 
It will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. That was his response. It didn't matter to me. You're, I mean, okay, you stay here and, and do your life and you'll die and you'll be eaten by worms and I might go down and I might get eaten by cannibals, but it makes no difference to me how it ends up. Patton understood this reality. He had died to himself and the details as to how and when his natural life played out were just the details that did not matter as much as following in obedience to what Christ was calling him to. What can persuade people like this to make such radical and such bold decisions. Many, I told you about the lady that I sat by at ICM Banquet, uh, working in South Sudan. She'd been there for 15 years. So the Lord's Resistance Army, the LRA, um, Kony, I think was his name. You remember the news about how horrible child armies that they had, how, how just difficult this region is. She's been there for 15 years praying, planting churches, raising up indigenous uh, workers, pastors within the community to evangelize and reach South Sudan, war-torn South Sudan, hopefully moving into North Sudan with the gospel. How can people make such bold decisions? And many doubtless save home, stay at home seeking to save their own lives. But you have to ask if if this Mr. Dickinson and this Mr. Patton, if this Mr. Dickinson sought to save his own life, and so he stays by his ration of saving his own life, has he really saved his life? One has to ask how many out of an effort to save their lives, lives really lost them due to apathy and by holding to a faith that wasn't genuine. But those who went knew, and those that go, that they go and even lose their lives in the service of Christ was to gain life. He, some stay thinking they win, thinking they gain, and, those, and, and they might end up very well losing. And those who go knowing they might lose have gained. They know the secret of Galatians 2.20 that says that they had died in the life they now live. They lived by faith in the Son of God. To live life seeking only for yourself and for your desires, your own gain. This is what Jesus is clearly saying. If to live life seeking for yourself, your own desires, your own demands, your own dreams, your own gain, to live that way is to lose your soul. That's what Jesus is saying. It's profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits or loses himself. There is one creator. It's, it's, it's living with, instead of the creator at the center of the universe, it's living with yourself and your own desires at the center of the universe. And newsflash, people, you do not belong at the center of the universe. You are not big enough to hold this thing together. You're not big enough. There is one creator, and he isn't you. There is one savior, and it isn't you. The call of the gospel is to repent and believe in the gospel that when you live your life for the glory of another and out of the joy that you find in him and the joy that you find in the gospel, though you may lose your life, you are truly saved. You have gain in gaining Christ. So Jesus moves on from this rhetorical question. Whoever seeks to save will lose it. Whoever loses his life for his sake will actually save it. And he goes on to this question, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? It's a rhetorical question. The answer's not in there, but it's in there. The answer is nothing. Nothing. If you gain the whole world, hyperbole, I mean, 
The whole world, folks, is what he's saying. He's, it's, it's beyond what you could think. You become not just the possessor of an, a vast amount of money. You don't become um, Warren Buffett. You don't become, I don't know, think of the richest person you can think of that's got more money than know what to do with yachts, houses, everything. No, that, not even that rich. The whole world. If you could gain it all, and yet you forfeit your own soul, what have you gained? And the answer is absolutely nothing. If, the gain, if you gain all that there is to gain, you have gained nothing. We follow the text back to the point of where it starts and where we start with this morning because Jesus is putting all of this in an eschatological light. Okay? There's, a, there's a $5 word for you, an eschatological light. He's putting eschatological. It's a, I know it's a tough word, and, and Darren likes to throw out big words, but this is a great word to learn, eschatology, eschatological view. Eschatology is the view of the end. How is it all going to work out? How does this whole thing end up? What is the eschatological end of it all? And Jesus in this, he's pointing to the end. He's saying if you want to know how you can lose yourself and really gain, look at the end of it all. At the end of it all, who's going to be there? This Savior. This Savior, this God is going to be there. He points all of this back into this eschatological hope. This end of it all hope. That when it's all tied up, the ones that hope, how can you lose everything and yet gain? Look at the end. How can you have gained the whole world? The whole world. And yet still lose? Look at the end. He says there's a day coming when he will come in his glory. He says in verse 27, he will come in his glory, verse 26, and the glory of his father and of the angels. And that is the day that will matter. That day is the day that will matter. And the creator of the universe will not be impressed with the pile of trinkets that we have all gathered for ourselves. He will not be impressed with a pile of things that we've gathered for ourselves. So there's a couple places in our remaining time, outside of the Gospel of Luke, while we kind of came back, there's a few places. This isn't just, we'll return to this teaching from Jesus. He goes back to it. But there's some other New Testament places I want us to go to. If you have your Bible out still, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to look around. At, we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, a couple of verses there, and 1 Peter 3. I, we could look at the whole context, but we don't have time for that. But 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, and we'll also look further back at 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, 1 Timothy is a New Testament epistle, pastoral epistle, way at the back of your Bible, um, after Hebrews. Oh, no, right before Hebrews. 1 Thessalonians, 1 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews. So Hebrews is bigger. Work left from Hebrews. You can find 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. There's three questions in our remaining time I want us to get answered. What are we really losing? Question one, what are we losing? When we lose the world to gain Christ, what are we really losing? Second question, how does that losing practically play out? This losing and this gain, all this talk, lose, gain, lose, gain. How does that practically play out in our lives right here, right now? And the third question, what gain are we really gaining? So we're in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Let's read 17 through 19. It says, as for the 1 Timothy chapter 6, this is a great chapter just on contentment and enjoying the gospel. I commend it to you, but we'll look at 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age... 
charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. First question, what are we losing? And I love the way uh, Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on what? The uncertainty of riches. The uncertainty of riches. When we, when we follow Christ, when we lose the world, what are we losing? Really, you're losing uncertainty. You're losing the uncertainty of security. We love to build security in our modern age. It's an illusion, folks. Security is an illusion. There is no safe place. I don't, no matter how many seatbelts you put on, no matter how many vitamins you take, no matter how much walking you do, 10 miles a day, no matter how many precautions you take, there is no real, sure, safe. It's an uncertainty of the riches we have Safety is an illusion in this world. You can gain the world, and what have you really gained? A fistful of sand. That's what you've gained. When you gain the whole world, you've gained a fistful of sand. Like the rich man from Luke chapter 12, he gains and gains and gains. And so what's he do? He builds bigger barns. And he says, I'm going to store up treasure. Look at my barns full of treasures. I'm going to just sit back and have ease and enjoy the rest of my life. And Jesus says, what a fool because that very night his life is required of him and all of his storing, all of his gaining, what did it gain him? Nothing. And, and the call for Jesus to be able to, to lose your life, to save it, the reality of what you're losing is a fistful of sand, nothing you'll really be able to hold to in the final analysis. The answer to our first question of what we are losing when we give up our lives to Jesus seems to be we lose everything that really means nothing. Really means nothing. It really means nothing. But then the question comes, moving on, how does this play out in our lives? And I just told the story of a couple of cross-cultural ministries, Patton, this lady I met Thursday night, other missionaries we talked about last week with Jim Elliott and things like that. How does this play out in our lives? Is, is the call then, is what we need to do, is all of us here need to now forsake all of our occupations, our livelihood here, and go and move to some impoverished, unreached people group and try to reach them? Is that what Darren is calling for? Is that what we all need to do? And I will say again, like I had said last week, of course not. Not all. Not all. But maybe some. And, I, and I've, I've got to press this point because got, we got young people in here. We got uh, people that are at a younger age than some of the rest of us, but even some of us in our 30s and 40s need to hear this call. Fall in love with the gospel. Fall in love with the people and be obedient to where Christ is leading you. If Jesus grips you in such a strong way, and yet you get a heart for a people group. We emphasize a different unreached people group every week. If your heart becomes broken for a people group, maybe you should. Maybe you should. And if it costs you everything, if you lost the world to reaching some other group with the gospel, but you've gained Christ, have you lost? No, is the Bible answer. No, that's some. And so I've got to say that. I've got to say that. There are some. But... However, the reality is that many will not go. Many of us are still here 
living in Ringgold County, Iowa. And what does this look like? What does living for Christ look like for us? How does Paul say to Timothy? Look back in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, uh, Don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but set them on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And they are to do what? They are to do good. To be rich in good works, to be generous, and to be ready to share. They are to do good, to be generous, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. Does that sound radical? Try it sometime. Try going out and doing good, being generous, seeking always to do good, to be rich, rich, not in the worldly treasures, but to be rich in good works. Go out and try it. Go out and try it. If you, if you think that sounds easy, I might suggest to you, maybe you've never really tried it. But I'll add this. While I, while I do think we need to continue to send and support missionaries to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, you know what's desperately needed right here in Mount Air and Ringgold County? That mentality right here. That mentality right here. As incredible as some of those stories are, and they are incredible, your neighbors, this community, needs to see you overwhelmed with joy in Christ and satisfied to part with every kind of joy that this life has to offer because of the joy that you already have secured for you in Christ. In one sense, a life that has been given to Christ right here in Ringgold County, southern Iowa, middle of nowhere, can't find it on the map, I don't even know how many percentage of the population. What, in one sense, a life that has been given to Christ right here can be as radical as a life given to Christ over there. This community is desperate, is desperate for a people who are offering them something more than all that this world has to offer. If you want the world, if you want success here, if you want happiness here, if you want good relationships, if you want to prosper financially, the world will throw at you thousands of options about how to find those things. And in the end, if you follow those things and you achieve them in the end, they will fail. What this practically looks like is that we as a people are people who work hard, love well, and remain steadfast in their joy no matter what life brings their way because they know that the things of this life aren't really theirs anyway. These things are disappearing. They are not really ours anyway. And we know that we have something more. We have something more. In the having of Jesus, we have something more. If sickness comes, if sickness comes to you, you have Christ. If poverty comes to you, money goes and you lose your possessions and you have Christ, you can lose everything. And if you have Christ, you have gain. If family struggle and strife gets stirred up and your family disowns you and hates you and you have Christ, you have lost the world, but you have gained Christ, have you lost? No. You have gained Christ. You have gained Christ. Few things. What, what our community needs to see is not, oh, we're, we are a people who, when life does come and knock all of us down, we have something that cannot be stolen. And it is our joy in the gospel. It is our joy in who Jesus is for us. What we need to display 
We need to display the worth of the gospel that in it we have joy through the trials of life. So we answer question number one with the reality that we are called to lose, really, all that will fail us in the final sense. And we answer question two with the realization that no matter if we are called to follow Christ here or there or anywhere on the spectrum, all followers are to have this simple obedience and joy in Christ through whatever comes their way as a result. So finally, we have our third question what is that ground? And that's the First Peter passage. Just lastly, First Peter chapter 1. This will go quick. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. In this, what's the this? This reality, this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. In this, verse 6, you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Enduring grief, trials, Losing in this life, rejoicing because of the sight they have and what they have gained in the gaining of Christ. We say, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that they do not lose heart knowing that this temporal suffering is not worthy of being compared to the eternal weight of glory that Christ has for us. What ground can be solid enough that through the various trials of life has so much value that through those trials you know you still gain? And it is the ground of our right standing with God through faith in Christ alone. What are we offering to the world? What are we offering to this community? If people walk in these doors, what are we offering to them? We are offering a gain that cannot be stolen. Not principles for better living and you go out there and maybe it works for a while and then eventually it crumbles because it's a fistful of sand. We are we are. We are holding out to the world a gain that cannot be stolen. We all as sinful people deserving the wrath of God have no need, no right to claim His mercy for ourselves. What does this God do? He sends His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He lives the righteous life we should have lived, dies the death that we deserve, so that through repentance, confessing of our sin, and faith in Him, we would be justified made right with God, and a justification that cannot be stolen away. That is gain. The creator of it all has rescued those who trust in Christ. And that is a gain that cannot be stolen. That is a gain that you can lose the world, lose the world, and yet say, I've gained what cannot be stolen. It can take everything from me. But it cannot take this one thing that matters most. What does it profit a man if he gains the world and loses his soul? Nothing. What does it profit a man if he loses the world and yet saves his soul through faith in the one and only Savior? What has he gained? Everything. He's gained everything. Let's pray. Father, help us to see the immense value of your redemption and what it means for us sinners that we would be able to boldly approach the throne of grace and call you Father, that I do not deserve to get to do that. And by your grace and your mercy, the work of your Son, 
through the gift of faith, you have accomplished it for your people. Father, make that gain settle in us, settle deep in our hearts, so that as the storms of life blow, we can confess, though I lose the world for Christ's sake, I have a gain in Christ that cannot be stolen and cannot be outweighed. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.